I have called up in all my years of sorcery no god or devil, ominous and gibbous. And the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel The wormy corpses that he dug with his hands from unconsecrated graves. It is thoroughly known by few, there were people, but it's mostly priests and women, it is told, whom he picked up as they fled, and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. The Double Shadow, Clark Ashton Smith Podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week, we'll be covering part two of The Door to Saturn. How confusing will it be for the people in my life if I just start calling Saturn Sakarnash? <laughs> With no explanation. I mean, I don't talk about the stars or the gods very often, I guess. Yeah, that and... um. Sphenomoe. Yeah. For Venus. Let's petition NASA to rename the planets based on the Clark Ashton Smith canon. Let's petition Neil deGrasse Tyson because he'll help popularize it. We've got to play the long game on this one. <laughs> the I-bomb game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where did, where did we leave off? Well, when we left our beloved sorcerer Ibon, he was marooned on Saturn, but Morgi, high priest of Yehunda, the elk goddess and high inquisitor thereof had followed Ibon cavalierly to wherever Ibon had gone, which turned out to be Sirkanosh or Saturn, with the goal of getting him back so that he could be properly tortured and whatnot for worshipping Sathagwa, who had given him said door to Saturn. Of course, Morgi doesn't really realize that, oh hey, there's no way back, or not that we know of. So Ibon has just approached a local beast thing which looks sort of like Sathagoa and which he assumes must be uh, a deity, talked to said beast by saying the two words that he knew. The beast has corrected his pronunciation, pointed, and uttered a few more words. And Ibon has realized that this must be a sacred charge, because this must be a god, because only a god could have been drinking from the molten mercury stream and lake. And just as he's about to go on his way, he runs across Morgi. And Morgi tries to arrest him and Ibon points out that they're on Saturn, so why don't you just come with? Because I'm on my way to deliver a message. So uh, before we were recording, I asked Tim this question that I think we should discuss on the podcast, which is, so Morgie shows up, and Ibon is like, I have this message I have to deliver. Now, the message is three words that this mysterious mercury-drinking god gave to him. Now, the question is, do you think that he really believes this is a message he has to deliver, or is he just making this up as he goes along is he suckered by his own rubeness or, or is he like actively lying do you think i believe that he believes that this is a sacred charge to him and he's got to go that way and deliver these words to somebody because he, he buys into this whole thing with gods and zathakwa and huil kaminza <laughs> yeah i think because because of the way that he interacted with that god that God, I would have to say that I think he's bought into it. I think it, it seems like it would be interesting and I wouldn't put it outside of his behavior to make it all up. Yeah, I mean, I just it's, I just want to track that back for a second, if we could, yeah. to his exact thought process. Uh -huh. So he, by by his current logic, he mm -hmm. he had no idea when he was going to be coming to Saturn because it was it was not really foretold. It was like, they're, they're coming now, I have to go. So by this logic... He then shows up 
and there's a god who's currently active on Saturn who could probably deliver a message wherever he wanted if he actually was a god. But because this random dude from Earth randomly shows up, he has now has to deliver this message, and that to some like he just sounds like an idiot. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, like, he sounds like a, a guy who's who's pretty sure he, he's some sort of special prophet, right? And but so, but does he think that that his prophetness is related to like the random occurrence back on Earth that that this is the moment when the elk goddess came for him? Sure, I mean, in a prophet's head, a coincidence is a miracle. I just think he's an idiot. That's, that's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> I didn't say that those weren't the same thing. We'll see that he's he's basically just a con man as we keep going through. He's just making things yes. up on the spot. But I do think that he... But I think he believes what he's making yeah, up. That's the thing. I, well, I think he does after he makes it up. <laughs> yeah, I think he buys into his yeah. own stuff. He's one of those guys. Your question will be answered by the end of this story. <laughs> Phil, I That's promise true. you. I just, I just wish that I had a uh, a view into his right. thinking, right? Instead of just presenting what he says and how he acts. Like I, didn't, I wouldn't want a lot, but I would just, I would like a Ivan thought blank, blank, blank. Yeah. Instead, what instead what you get is he gets this message, and the first the reader knows, the first moment the reader knows that he even thinks this is a message that he's gotten that he has to deliver is when he says it. Yeah. Right? It's mm-hmm. not like mm-hmm. which is it's a, it's an interesting way to present such a strange character quirk yeah or like and also yeah. such a key moment in a story that suddenly he's just like oh i have this message i was just uh, given it now and now yeah, i have I to just, go this way just right now yeah. <laughs> well and i think i like that about the way that he writes the story that it's a it's a quirky story yeah i mean I, i'm not really casting disparagement on the story i think it's it's is what makes it distinctive these weird the weird twists and the really i think comedic tone of it is is just really strange <laughs> yes um, which is why Farnsworth Wright wouldn't print it, but frankly, I love it. Yeah. So Morgie and Ibon start making their way down the road to fulfill this holy quest that Ibon has gotten from this god up on the mountain. Yeah, Morgie starts peppering him with questions, being proper inquisitor. Yeah, like, who is that god? I've never heard of him. And then, oh, he's a god? Yeah. Who is he? And he's the paternal uncle oh. of Zathakwa. <laughs> <laughs> But it's funny because how where does he get that from? Like Zathakwa never told him. Well, either Zathakwa told him that, or he's just running. Yeah, but with he it. never. That, he that word him. that he gave him, he didn't know that it was a name. He just knew that it was a word. A pass. He kept calling it a password. No, he knew it was the name of a, a no, god. He, yeah, yeah, that's he didn't right. know it was a name of a god. Yeah, I assumed. That, I assumed that at some point Zathakwa was like, "Yeah, it's my uncle's name." Oh man. <laughs> but it, it is more fun to think that he's just making this up. So who is that guy? Paternal uncle of Zathagwa. Kind of looks like him. Zathagwa in his lair was like, man, you ever been to Sirkinosh? Oh, man, you got to hook up with this guy, Wilson Kaminzer. He's my uncle. He's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and what's the mission of yours? And I just love, and this is very Ibon. That will be revealed in due time, answered Ibon with sententious dignity. I am not allowed to discuss it at present. I have a message from the god, which I must deliver only to the proper persons. Yeah, and he's totally making it up. That's, yeah. But I love that more guy was unwillingly <laughs> impressed. Impressed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so they keep going through this crazy, crazy beautiful but weird landscape, and then they run across this beast being thing. Yeah, yeah they travel for a while, and they stop, and they eat, they share... Ibon's little food supplies. Which is nice of him. Yeah, and then they 
come up upon this giant creature. Well, they've been seeing the footprints on the road as they're traveling. Giant, mm-hmm. circular Lots footprints. Lots of them. Yeah. And then they just see this thing squatting in the middle of the road. And Morgi asks, is this another one of your gods? But uh, Ibon has a reputation to sustain, so he cries out the name again and draws his sword, thrusts it between the two plates of horny mail and that cover the monster's hindquarters. Yeah, that's an interesting approach it to it. But that yeah. starts a thing. Yeah, it starts moving. Yeah, they keep traveling, and the thing keeps stopping, and Ibon keeps doing his little ritual, which works every time. Um, <laughs> and Ibon keeps thinking, why couldn't I have gone somewhere better, with a nicer place, and without Morgi? And, like, seriously, Sithagwa, you sent me to Sirkanosh? And Morgi was compelled to regard Ibon with a certain awe. <laughs> So it's working, and I wrote on my notes for this, if you find yourself on another world, fake it. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. So they they keep doing this. They're walking and with this thing, and then it stops, and they get it to move, and they keep... And as they're walking, they, um, they realize that they both kind of hate it here. <laughs> yep. The forest was thinning rapidly, and the clamor of termagant bellows was drawing closer, still following the hindquarters of their multi-pedal guide, which was crawling on with reluctant slowness. The travelers emerged in an open space and beheld a most singular tableau. The monster, which was plainly of a tame and harmless and stupid sort, was cowering before a knot of beings no larger than men who were armed only with long-handled goads. These beings, though they were bipeds, were nevertheless sufficiently unusual, for their head and bodies were apparently combined in one, and their ears, eyes, nostrils, mouths, and certain other organs of doubtful use were all arranged in a somewhat unconventional grouping on their chests and abdomens. They were wholly naked and were rather dark in color, with no trace of hair on any part of their bodies. Behind them, at a little distance, were many edifices of a kind which hardly conformed to human ideas of architectural symmetry. Ivan strode valorously forward, with Morgai following discreetly. The torso-headed beings ceased their scolding of the fawning monster and peered at the Earthmen with expressions that were difficult to read on account of the odd and baffling relationship of their features. Zothakwa, said Iben with oracular solemnity and sonority. Then, after a pause of hieratic length, Iqui Losh Odquilonk, the result was indeed gratifying and was all that could be expected even from a formula so remarkable, for the Sikranashian beings dropped their goads and bowed before the sorcerer till their featured bosoms almost touched the ground. I have performed the mission. I have delivered the message given me by whose will Koi Gomensha, said Ivan to Morgai. So there's a lot to unpack in that reading. I yeah. don't even know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> so many conclusions drawn. Yeah. So many strange sights. So many words said. So many reactions had. Yeah. They meet these torso people on the road. Uh, he delivers his message that he got from Wheels of Kaminza. 
they drop down and they seem to be worshipping them. And then... So Ivan clearly thinks that he, he took this idea, he ran with it, and it's working out okay. We find out that the, these torso people, the Belemfroyums, take the two Hyperboreans in and they take care of them and they, they're their honored guests. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we jump forward two months in time after this, which is crazy. Good it says point. for several Sacronian months. So I don't know what a, what a, a Saturn month oh, is, but true. they're there for a while. Iban is very good at learning languages, so he learns how to speak Blemfroim. Blemfroimian. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of realizes that this world isn't as cool as he thought it was. and that... He didn't even think it was that cool, though, so it's <laughs> doubly know, a problem. <laughs> even the little bit that he thought was cool is kind of being shattered, because it turns out that the beast is its like a cow, basically, yeah, and that they didn't understand the words that he said to them, but they returned their cow so they were grateful to him. <laughs> Which is, it's, it's nice, but, but this is the part I love, is that the guy that he met by the lake that he was like, oh yeah, this must be the god, was in fact actually the god. Although, still no idea what he said to him, and they're not very religious, right, yeah. so the fact that he met one god and chills with another, they don't care. But he got the god right. The Blemfroyums are very materialistic. They're like mushroom farmers. They are like mushroom farmers. And they are mushroom farmers. There's just a lot of mushroom involved. Yeah. So what do you think Ibon told Morgi all of that stuff? Or do you think he let Morgi believe that Ibon delivered some kind of message? I think he told him eventually. I think he tells him as little as possible. So they're living with these torso people, eating their gross mushrooms. And then we learn a little bit about <laughs> how... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> we start. Le- we get to learn a little bit about how these things reproduce. Yeah, and I liked. He said that they were bisexual, but what it actually means is there's two sexes. But it appears like on- there's really only the men around, and there's the only only the one female. Kind of like how the bees work, but I don't know. It could just be that on- only one female is chosen. Yeah. Because he says only one female in a generation was chosen for oh, reproductive duty. So there, there, I mean, we can assume that there's females. How you would tell is another story that I don't want to talk about right now. <laughs> but yeah, they choose one and that one eats special scientific fungus to become <laughs> giant and um, births the, the entire next generation of torso people. Now, this makes me think of Futurama. Slurm? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Slurm, yeah. yeah. This makes me think of how Slurm is being made. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, this is so, like, classic, weird Mm sci-fi, but just bananas. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I haven't read enough of that weird sci-fi, but it seems like this is kind of a parody of those old science fiction stories, like John Carter... I think, yeah, you're probably right to take it that way. And I think that's why I enjoy it so much more than those stories. Yeah, it knows it's silly and it's going with it. Yeah, so they live with them and they get a little bit bored. But they're offered a great opportunity. Yeah, well, first they're allowed to see the, uh, they're allowed to see her, which is pretty Mm. exciting. Oh, I love, um, I love the description. Uh, The sorcerer and the inquisitor were impressed. If even if not captivated by the mountainous amplitude of her charms and by their highly novel arrangement. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I like to think that she's got like one boob on her back and another one like on her shoulder. I love it. 
I, I don't know. But, and they're gigantic. Or maybe she's got a bunch. I would think that hopefully if she's birthing the next generation, she would have a lot. Oh my God, I don't know. I don't know. How do we know? Well, if she's like really, really, really big, like I'm, I'm thinking that she's like the size of a, like maybe not a skyscraper, but you know, a building or something, then she could have a lot of them um, to nurse all the little babies because these things seem to be um, mammalian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then she would have to have kind of, if she were going to mate with the males, some bits of her couldn't have gotten that much bigger. Oh God! <laughs> well, we learn we learn a bit about uh, that they are very much like humans because they they used to be human like, but through generations, their heads evolved into their chests. <laughs> yeah, it's like guys. Why were you selecting for that? Yeah. <laughs> you should have been mating with the people with the necks. <laughs> necks are good. Well, necks that gives them like. the the idea that they want. Ibon and Morgie to be the fathers of their next generation because they have their heads are not attached to their torsos. I love that they're I love that they're not happy with the course of evolution. No. So they're like like this is a great opportunity for the Plemfroims. They're like, <laughs> finally we can do yeah. something about our embarrassing head torso situation. <laughs> and Ibon and Morgie are already feeling pretty disillusioned with this yeah. whole situation. The specificity of their disillusionment is great too, because the diet is tiresome. Right. Because it's just raw and boiled and roasted mushrooms. <laughs> and then occasionally. And the coarse and flabby meat of tame monsters. <laughs> and then they even try, I get, it seems like as a lark to pass the time to try to turn the Blumfroyums to religion, but they can't do it. Uh-huh. They won't be turned. <laughs> Neither of them. Yeah, they won't go so, for Zitako kind of- or Yonde. I feel said Ivan to Morgai one day, that the god was sadly mistaken in dining to send this people a message of any sort. It was very soon after this that a large committee of the Blemfroims waited upon Ivan and Morgai and informed them that after long consideration they had been selected as the fathers of the next generation and were to be married forthwith to the tribal mother in the hope that a well-headed race of Blemfroims would result from the union. Iben and Morgai were quite overcome by the proposed eugenic honor. Thinking of the mountainous female they had seen, Morgai was prone to remember his sacerdotal vows of celibacy and Ibn was eager to take similar vows upon himself without delay. The Inquisitor, indeed, was so overwhelmed as to be rendered almost speechless, but, with rare presence of mind, the sorcerer temporized by making a few queries anent the legal and social status which would be enjoyed by Morgai and himself as the husbands of the Genquom. And the native Blemfroims told him that this would be a matter of brief concern, that after completing their marital duties, the husbands were always served to the national mother in the form of ragouts and other culinary preparations. The Hyperboreans tried to conceal from their hosts the reluctance with which they both regarded the coming honor in all its stages. Being as usual a master of diplomatics, Ibn went so far as to make a formal acceptance on behalf of himself and his companion, but when the delegation of Blemfroims had departed, he said to Morgai, I am more than ever convinced that the god was mistaken. We must leave the city of Lore with all feasible dispatch 
and continue our journey till we find a people who are worthier to receive his communication. Uh, I love so much about this. <laughs> Which, this is part of what makes me think that he's still sort of stringing Morgie along for the most part. I just, I like the presentation of that first sentence in this reading, I think is so funny. Yeah. Because <laughs> I feel, he said one day, as they were eating their like cold mushrooms, that the god maybe was sadly mistaken in needing to send this particular like people a message of any sort whatsoever. He's like, I might have made a mistake. Yeah, basically. And then, like, there's so many awesome little tidbits in here. So, like, they make this eugenics offer, basically, honor, quote-unquote. And the phrasing of it is so funny because it, it's all ironically phrased. They clearly don't want to do it, even from the first no. sentence. They kind of play along with it. And then I love that Ivan, it's Ivan, right, yeah. who's like, mm -hmm. well, what do we get out of it? Right, <laughs> like, right. Like, yeah. Maybe it could be worth our while. Maybe. But then he realized they just get eaten. <laughs> this is the most terrible idea ever. So he's like, well, uh, we've obviously delivered the message to the wrong people. We got to get out of here. Which is actually shockingly easy because the Blimfroyum are an extremely trusting people. And they think, well, yeah, of course they would want to be honored with by being the pretenders of the next generation. Cool. And we're going. And so they just, they scoot. Yeah, well, they see a lot of cool things on the way. I like that the boundary of the Blemfroyans is marked by a crude sculptural representation of the tribal mother, which is kind of a cool image. Mm -hmm. As they're journeying, they see the jihibis, which are like bird people who sit on top of rocks and meditate on the cosmos, <laughs> uttering to each other long intervals the mystic syllables yop, yeep, and yoop which are said to express an unfathomed <laughs> range of esoteric thought. <laughs> that might be in a in a story full of amazing paragraphs. Eh, it might win. I <laughs> so I feel like Sathogwa, the stoner god, might have gotten along with yeah. these guys really oh, yeah. well and been on his own thing contemplating the, the cosmos. Yeah, but what about Yeep, man? Yeah. <laughs> now, Morgi's kind of, he's, he's much more out of shape than Ivan is. So he's really not enjoying this this whole fast trek because they're trying to get away so that they can't be recaptured. And I keep saying, just think of the national mother, dude. Just think of the national mother. Yeah, because they're mother. afraid the Blemfroims are following them to recapture them because they both have a dream that they the Blemfroims come and grab them and force them to become yeah. the fathers of their next generation. So yeah, they're climbing... <laughs> Morgie climbs like an agile but somewhat asthmatic mountain. Think of the national mother. We didn't even talk about the Fliberty Gibbet Pygmies. No, we didn't. The Ethics or the I'm Glongs. There's, we don't, I mean, we have to go back. I'm just saying there's an amazing array yeah. of stuff thrown at the, at the wall. Yeah, <laughs> the Fliberty Gibbet Pygmies, the Ethics, who hollow out their homes in the trunks of certain large fungi, but the fungi rot within a couple of days, so they're always trying to find new homes. It's really sad. That's a whole sad other story that should be yeah. written. Yeah. And then there's the frog people who live underground who nobody's ever seen, but people hear them. The glongs. Yeah, because they dread sun sunlight and ring light. I, I just I just want to go back to something I said in the last episode, which is the amount of things he's throwing at Sir Kanosh as a setting 
meanwhile, like we're two stories into Hyperborea and we know almost nothing about Hyperborea. Right. <laughs> yeah. But like I know at least five races that live on, on Saturn. It's just weird. That's all. Yeah. So we jumped around a little there, but ultimately they're climbing a mountain trying to get away from the Blumfroyums who aren't actually chasing them. Uh, but they just think no. they are. And then they cause an avalanche. Well, I'm assuming they cause it, or does it just happen? They end up intersecting an avalanche leading into the country of the Yadim, who are more faithful to actually worship both Sathalgwa a bit, but more his, his uncle, and actually might understand what this message is that Ibon speaks. The avalanche is an avalanche of enormous puffballs, which I picture as those... What are they called? You know, people blow on them and they make... Yeah, they're, they're, they're yeah, dandelion seeds. Uh, those and toadstools. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. a giant avalanche of puffballs and mushrooms. Um, <laughs> and they, they Morgie and Ibon, oh, they get caught up in it, right? Yep. And they, they try to pray to their gods, but they don't even have a second for it. So they just, they roll with it. Yep. And so they land in a, a town that also got buried by the avalanche, and that's where they meet the Yadims. Mm-hmm. Wait, I'm sorry, did they did they know they were heading for Yadim? Yeah, How? kind of. I mean, they knew they were heading for right. the next territory And they knew over, that they were religious, because the, the Blemfroyams told them that uh, the Yadims speak the language of the gods. Uh, and that's oh, the, okay. Yeah. Got yeah, it. So it's not like they, they, they decided to go there at some useful point because, oh, yeah, these guys we might right. get on with. No, they, they were totally staying with the Blumfroyms until the whole National Mother incident. So Ibon stands up, dusts himself off, and goes for it. Harkin, he said with great importance, I have come to bring you a message from the god Uzwilkoi Gomensha. In the god's own divine language, it runs thus. Ikwi, Losh, or Kolonk. Since he spoke in the dialect of the Blemfroims, which differed somewhat from their own, it is doubtful if the Edims altogether understood the first part of his utterance. But whose wheel Koi Gomensha was their tutelary deity, and they knew the language of the gods. At the words, Iqui Losh Od Kolonk, there was a most remarkable resumption and increase of activity, a ceaseless running to and fro on the part of the Edims, and a shouting of guttural orders, and a recrudescence of new heads and limbs from the avalanche. Those who had issued from the temple re-entered it, and came out once more carrying a huge image of Uzwil Koi Gomensha, some smaller icons of lesser though allied deities, and a very ancient-looking idol, which both Iban and Morgai recognized as having a resemblance to Zothakwa. Others of the Edims brought their household goods and furniture forth from the dwellings, and, signing the Hyperboreans to accompany them, the whole populace began to evacuate the town. Iben and Morgai were much mystified, and it was not until a new town had been built on the fungus-wooded plain at the distance of a full day's march, and they themselves had been installed among the priests of the new temple, that they learned the reason of it all and the meaning of Iqui Losh Odkolonk. These words meant merely, Be on your way, and the god had addressed them to Iben as a dismissal. But the coincidence coming of the avalanche and of Ibn and Morgai with this purported message from the god 
had been taken by the Edeens as a divine injunction to remove themselves and their goods from their present location. The god is just like, dude, yeah. you don't even speak. Like, you're trying to say Sithagwa, and I'm trying to tell you how to, you know, just. He was like, go away, kid, you bother me. <laughs> and he just, you know, he gestures, he points and says, go, go away. So now Ibon knows that uh, it was all just BS on his part. Well, BS and misunderstanding. But you know what? They were really lucky. And so it's okay. They're great. There's no more avalanches. They get a, an increment of civic affluence and well-being resultant from the security. No national mother. <laughs> so they're, they're safe from that. The Hyperboreans shared the increment of civic affluence and well-being resultant from this security. There was no national mother among the Edeems propagated themselves in a far more general manner than the Blemfroims, so existence was quite safe and tranquil. Iben, at least, was really in his element, for the news which he brought of Zothakwa, who was still worshipped in this region of Sikranosh, had enabled him to set up as a sort of minor prophet, even apart from the renown which he enjoyed as the bearer of the divine message and as the founder of the new town of Glomph. Morgai, however, was not entirely happy. Though the Edeems were religious, they did not carry their devotional fervor to the point of bigotry or intolerance, so it was quite impossible to start an inquisition among them. But still there were compensations. The fungus wine of the Edeems was potent, though evil-tasting, and there were females of a sort, if one were not too squeamish. Consequently, Morgai and Iben both settled down to an ecclesiastic regimen which, after all, was not so radically different from that of Muthulan or any other place on the planet of their birth. Such were the various adventures, and such was the final lot of this redoubtable pair in Sikranosh. But in Iben's Tower of Black Nice on that headland of the northern sea in Muthulan, the underlings of Morgai waited for days, neither wishing to follow the high priest through the magic panel, nor daring to leave in disobedience of his orders. At length they were recalled by a special dispensation from the Hierophant who had been chosen as Morgai's temporary successor, but the result of the whole affair was highly regrettable from the standpoint of the hierarchy of E. Hounda. It was universally believed that Iben had not only escaped by virtue of the powerful magic he had learned from Zothakwa, but had made a way with Morgai into the bargain. As a consequence of this belief, the faith of E. Hounda declined, and there was a widespread revival of the dark worship of Zothakwa throughout Muthulan in the last century before the onset of the Great Ice Age. Yeah. 
maybe maybe Zafaka was playing the long game all along. I know, right? <laughs> maybe it's true. There, so I want to talk about how we don't really how Morgie's personality really comes into view just in this last couple of paragraphs, I think. Like, we we knew already that he wanted to torture Ivan. I don't think that we ever quite understood just how Inquisition mad he is, but that he can't be happy in a place where there aren't bigots or the chance of a devotional fervor that could lead to Inquisition is fascinating. So he becomes so a drunk. A, well, but he yeah. becomes a drunk, and then they also learn that he's a hypocrite. He says earlier, you were reminded that he took oaths of celibacy, mm-hmm. but here it says that it's fine in Glomp because he can get drunk and get laid. <gasps> yep. So it's like yeah. you learn basically that, that he is sort of the emblematic, hypocritical, like religious bigot in a certain sense, which I just think is a fascinating thing to lay out at the end of your story. He's religious because it lets yeah. him hurt people. Yeah, basically. Which you have to wonder if that's a bit of Smith's critiques on religion. If we remember back to you oh, so long ago, Averon, <laughs> there were a lot of inquisitions <laughs> going on then, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole thing, this whole thing just seems to be a pretty, just like a punchline at the expense yeah. of religious people in general, kind of, that Ibon would assume that this message was for him and was special and then would go and say it without knowing what it meant and then would mm-hmm. like would have the sort of cascade of events just seems to be, I mean, whether by design or not, it can certainly be read as a critique of just religion in general, yeah. I guess. I love the story, though. I think it's hilarious. I love that it's the Ibon story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that in the previous story, he came up with Sathagwa. And then in this story, he basically took Sathagwa and, and really fleshed him out, gave him a backstory, gave him a, uh, both in Sirkanash and in Hyperborea, where he has this backstory that he really wasn't worshipped that much until this thing happened with Ibon, and then he became more popular and probably better known. And of course, was probably written down in the whole Book of Ibon, which then lasts. And then he starts putting the Book of Ibon into his Averon stories and maybe his Poseidonist stories, and I'm pretty sure his Zothique stories later on. And so... What he's setting up right here is a long literary set of references. But we see in it that at this point, Zathagwa is a neglected god with only the one worshiper. And Ibon's the guy who decided to get power by worshiping just this one deity because he can get all this info out of him. And then we see how Ibon acts on Sirkanash. And so as we go through forward through the stories, it would be cool as a reader if one were reading these in Weird Tales to know about the Book of Ibon and to know about Sathagwa and to look back at these things and to see, like, you see how Sathagwa ended up in Hyperborea. And maybe in our last story, it was around the same time as this, where, oh yeah, that's Sathagwa, but nobody worships him anymore. So do you think, do you think Satan Brazeros' story, the last story I read, takes place before or after Ibon has left Hyperborea? I would say shortly before, or shortly, or even a long time before, but, you know, after the, the worship of Sathagwa has died down and before... Ibon has really taken up with him, or maybe while well, Ibon's just the worshiper. Yeah, it would have to be before, I think, right? Because the last line mm-hmm. says that the worship of Zathakwa spread throughout Muthalan. Oh, but that's a, is that that's just a city, though, right? Well, Muthalan is um, the Greenland area of oh, Hyperborea, okay. I think. So if we're to follow that through, then I just for clarification for my own sake, way before Ibon worship Sathakwa. Mm-hmm. There there were Sathakwa worshippers on Hyperborea and it died out once mm-hmm. and then he brought it back. Is that is that how the chronology yeah. goes? Yeah. Yeah. And sometime between when they died out and when he brought it back, that's that's when I see Satan Pazeros yeah. happening. Right, right, right. 
That's my take on it. And then if we are the weird and strange tales readers of the early 1930s, everything else we see is a callback to these stories and obviously some expansions perhaps thereof but this is a real ibon story and then i just as, as tim keeps pointing out it's just weird to me and funny to me that when ibon appears and say hp lovecraft story or the book of ibon it's treated very seriously and that the fact that this, the biographical story of ibon is a farce in some sense mm-hmm. is really it totally undercuts in some sense, the idea of these being horror stories, purely horror stories, because you're like, so who was this Ibon? Oh, he was this weird trickster liar guy <laughs> who almost ended up having to, like, breed a race of of <laughs> Blomfroins. <laughs> like, yeah, who died on Saturn, if he even I died. I like the yeah. idea that, that the Book of Ibon has, like, a people who worshipped Ibon or who knew him or something wrote all these chapters about where he went right. that are totally wrong. Like, because nobody knows he went to Saturn. Yeah. So there are probably, like, in the book of Ibon, these ridiculous hagiographical or however you say that word accounts of his, like, later adventures doing something way cooler than he was actually doing, which is, like, yeah. eating mushrooms, <laughs> you know, talking to Blomfroims and Yadims. Do either of you know off the top of your head things that, that are in, according to, like, Lovecraft or, or other sources? things that are in the Book of Ibon? Like, what, what stories does the Book of Ibon appear in, and for what purpose? I don't know. Well, part of the, the coming of the White Worm is actually in the Book of Ibon, supposedly. And I'm pretty sure that that it was mentioned in Starbeast. Oh, here in, uh, on the Wikipedia, it says, The book was written by Ibon, a wizard in the land of Hyperborea. It was an immense text of arcane knowledge that contained, among other things, a detailed account of Ibon's exploits, including his journeys to the Vale of Nath and the planet Shaggy, his veneration rituals of Zathakwa, and his magical formulae, such as for the slaying of certain otherworldly horrors. Unfortunately, only one complete fragment of the original is known to exist, scattered in different places of our world. Though there are translations in English, French, and Latin, Liber Ivonis is the title of the Latin translation. Coming of the White Worm is chapter 9 of the Book of Ibon. Yeah, so in, in Beast, we have the demon that's imprisoned the in the of Ring Ibon, of Ibon. Yeah. In the original draft, he uses the, the Beast in the thing, tells him, oh, go look in the book for a recipe for some powder for this stuff. So we know in, in Beast, it's it's referenced as a thing. Um, okay, it was also written in 1932, which was the same year that he published this one. And it was um, originally rejected by Weird Tales in 32, and that's the one that he had to clean up a bunch until it got republished, and probably for the best. But anyway, so he, he did this at the same time as, or even after, writing Door to Saturn. Which I think this may be the first time we see a reference to Ibon in Averone. No, I want to go back and read all of it. I just read um, Ibon's Wikipedia entry. They totally gloss over the good stuff. <laughs> Ibon, a character in Smith's The Door to Saturn, was a sorcerer and priest of Zathakwa. He's renowned as the writer of the Book of Ibon, blah, blah, blah. He lives in a tower. Uh, Ibon disappeared shortly after Yande's premier inquisitor, Morgi, came to his black tower with a writ for his arrest. When the Inquisition came knocking, Ibon fled to Sirkanash, the planet Saturn, through a magic panel given to him by Z- Zathakwa. Ibon was never seen again on Earth after that. When Morgi vanished close on the heels of Ibon, many believed that he was in league with the sorcerer all along, and so was largely responsible what? for the decline in the worship of Yonde. Yeah, that was in the story. Also, um, the Ring of Ibon is made of a 
weird reddish goldish metal. So I'm thinking it's the same stuff as that panel, which is kind of cool. So he must have gotten that metal from Sathakwa as well to bind the demon. Which is a kind of a cool idea that he went to, had to go to Sathakwa and say, look, I need to bind this really cool demon. Do you have anything I can use? And Sathakwa says, well, how about this metal or how about this ring or whatever? And it's cool, man. I was just wanted to look up where he appears in Lovecraft. Because I think that's such a hilarious connection. Well, Haunter of the Dark, Dreams in the Witch House, Horror in the Museum, and Shadow Out of Time. Yeah, I'm looking at the specific text, though, to see what it says about it. So in Dreams in the Witch House, it's just like a book that he reads to get some terrible hints about what might be going on. <laughs> it's just so funny to me that these that that, that that name gets dropped in these very, very Lovecraftian stories. Because I, I don't think that there's really much Lovecraftian about this story at all. No, like, <laughs> no not at all. Uh, Although Lovecraft might have appreciate the, appreciated the fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But but, there, but the, the tone of it is just, it couldn't be more different. Yeah, um, but I still love, I, I think I said it last episode, I love that... Smith takes the same idea of these powerful beings, these aliens coming down to Earth and being worshipped as gods or acting as gods. Takes that same idea but puts such a an incredibly different spin, but that's still super effective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really want to cultivate like some bro time with Sathagwa. I know. I think, be a really good time. I think he, he could use I it now. These days, he's probably been alone. Again, yeah, his his worship yeah. has lapsed. I say that we form a cult of Zathagla and attempt to, to contact him in his underground lair. <laughs> I think this is the weirdest story we've read so far. It's probably made me laugh more than any other story yeah. that we've read so far. I just, I was so happy. Because the first time I read it, I didn't have all of this background. It was one of the first Smith stories I read. And I was really? like, okay. That's awesome. This is a little weird and odd and a little bit kooky and I'm not really sure what to do with it. And then reading it again this time in the context, I had some memories of it and I thought, well, this should be better. And just, I, I lay on the couch and read it all in one setting and just laughed the whole way through because I could, like the foreshadowing of when the God says the, the words to him and I remembered what those words actually meant and I, that's when I started laughing. And I had so much fun and trying to figure out how it fit into everything and it was a, it was a great, great moment yeah. to reread. Once I had all of this context that I've put together. Tim, what's your, what's your final take, Tim? Um, I like it. Would read it again. <laughs> if you down. want to turn your worship over to the small sleepy god, Sathagua, join our contest. We're having a contest. Uh, we have a, a book to give away, The Weird, which is so good. It's like an encyclopedic tome of all of these great weird horror stories dating back from i don't does anyone remember when the first few stories were maybe the yeah. 1800s yeah. it's insane. up until it's like 2007 fantastic. or something like that so you get this great overview of weird fiction throughout the years we've got one to give away so we thought it would be fun to have you guys draw pictures of zathagwa for us um, we'll also be drawing our interpretations don't worry if you can't draw we can't draw either just submit, fools. Submit. Yes. <laughs> submit, and then we will have them in by March 20th. You can use Twitter or our forums or Facebook or Google+, whatever method we have out there to be contacted. Use that. March 20th is the date. Tune in next time for... <gasps> the Weird of Avusul Wuthakwan. This has been The Double Shadow. Join us next time. Thanks. Bye.
just like sending Ibon to Sirkana yeah. sounds like an awesome idea just to talk about. It. <laughs> it's like, damn. Like, oh, yeah. How am I supposed to get him back? They're going to have to have sex that was... with that giant fat torso. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I would have said that out loud before I, before I really wish there, I... when I say it now, I just <laughs> sound like a moron. <laughs> really wish I ran this plan by someone first. <laughs> Uh, I love our version of Sapakla. <laughs> uh,